0: You're listening to Fairweather Friend, a podcast exploring some of the truths behind Australia's climate change denial. I'm your host, Melissa Gray-Ward, and today I'm joined by Dr. Zoe Leverston. Zoe is a research fellow in the Research School of Psychology at the Australian National University. Most of Zoe's work focuses on Australian attitudes to climate change, what predicts support for different climate policies, what underlies people's pro-environmental behaviour, and so on. Zoe has been based at the Australian National University since July this year and was in Edith Cowan University doing much of the same thing from 2017. Prior to that, Zoe was with the CSIRO for around 13 years. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'd love to start by hearing more about what led you to your focus on attitudes towards climate change.
1: Uh, I think we have to go back to about 2010, so it was with the social and social and behavioural science unit at CSIRO, and it was really a call from the uh, atmospheric scientists at CSIRO who approached us as social scientists uh, and said, why don't people understand uh, the science of uh, climate change? Why don't they understand it? And we automatically promptly said, well, I think you're asking the wrong question. It's not a matter of understanding or some sort of you know, deficit in knowledge. It's a, a failure to accept the science by a fragment of the population. Uh, so we set about undertaking a series of um, surveys of the general Australian population to look at what sort of underlying values, um, social networks, uh, Um, ideological preferences uh, could explain the differences in whether people would accept the science behind climate change and whether it explained their support for different climate policies and also what they do in their own life to reduce their carbon footprint.
0: Mm, That's really interesting. And so... Now, though, your current work, I understand, at ANU is focusing more on a study for attitudes towards climate change refugees resettling in Australia. Uh, Can you tell us Mm -hmm. a little bit more about that project and maybe how climate change denial in Australia intersects with certain attitudes towards climate migration?
1: Yes, so this is a um, project I'm doing with Samantha Stanley, who's another research fellow here at ANU and also Caroline, uh, Caroline Ng at University of Canberra. And we actually don't know a lot about how attitudes to migration and climate migrants intersects with um, attitudes to climate change, which is part of the reason we're doing this project. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's actually quite, a, uh, it's, it's, it's relatively understudied in the social sciences uh, so far, but we know that this is going to get, you know, Climate-related movement is going to become increasingly um, uh, pertinent over the next decade or so, and arguably it has been for some time now, um, with uh, you know drought-related incidents in in the Middle East driving cl- uh, huge shifts in population. Mm. Uh, so it's from a, a social science perspective, it's a difficult one to 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 pick apart what underlies people's attitudes and acceptance of climate driven migration, because it's kind of conflating two separate issues. One is this. uh, What is people's orientation towards climate change and acceptance that we should be doing something about climate change? And then on the other side of the coin, you have people's attitudes to to immigrants uh, Mm. into their own country. Uh, So they're they're two distinct uh, domains, if you like. But we do know from previous research that's been done in the climate change space and from previous research that's been done in attitudes to immigration, that there are certain kind of psychological underpinnings that predict people's attitudes towards both those domains. Um, so, so, yeah, so we've got so this um, classic const- construct in... Um, in, in psychological research, there's something called social dominance orientation. So that's, that's used to measure how people think different groups in society should relate to one another, whether people have an egalitarian attitude and think all groups of people are equal, or whether some people have a very dominant attitude and say someone, you know some groups of people, my group, for instance, uh, is naturally a, 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 you know, on top of the hierarchy and these other groups of people are somehow lesser. Um, so we find that people with strong social dominance orientations are hostile towards immigrants, especially, you know, non-white, non-European immigrants, yes. and they are also hostile to climate change, so much more likely to deny the science of climate change or to downplay the importance of climate change. And then uh, another construct we have is called right-wing authoritarianism, and sort of the clue is in the name there, <laughs> and that's that, yeah, that's um, kind of assessing how people, uh, you, you know, people's ad- people's orientation towards the role of authority in in, in um, everyday life. So people who are authoritarian again, uh, much more hostile towards climate science and climate action, and also host- hostile to to immigrant groups as well. Um, so there are those these you know cluster of concepts that predict people's attitudes both to climate change and to um and to to immigrants now the interesting thing is that uh the way that we approach climate denial for instance is that it serves some sort of psychological or social purpose and a lot of that makes sense you know if you deny that climate change is happening then all of a sudden you cut out this huge kind of existential threat absolutely yes yeah, well, very
0: you know, convenient
1: <laughs> that's right i i kind of get it i kind of get it right but uh, if you're talking about climate migration, especially what's happened with the summer of bushfires we've just been through, is then you get some 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 very interesting mental gymnastics that people might have to to <laughs> to, to go through because if you take a if you, if you just take like a farming room, like farmers are a really kind of popular subsection uh, of of you know it's it's built into the Australian eth- ethos that you don't knock farmers. Uh, Everybody loves a farmer. And so what happens about these people who are hostile towards both climate science and towards, you know, immigration, what happens when you start talking about internal migration where, you know, farmers might have to relocate to the city or, you know, the tree changers have to relocate back into, you know, less bushfire-prone areas? Um, Because, you know, for for your right-wing authoritarian social dominator, these are people like us, you know, people like them. And so there's much less antipathy and hostility towards, you know, people in your own social group. So you could get the the chance. So what we're looking at in this particular survey, which we're we're currently undertaking is do you get uh, a cluster of people that deny climate change are hostile towards any climate driven migration and yet If you ask them about internal migrants, people having to relocate from rural and regional areas, do they then all of a sudden say, oh yeah, because we need to help them because yeah, oh, you know, now that I think about it, climate change is really important. Um, So it's trying to kind of pick apart people's um, moral responsibility or sort of feelings of moral responsibility towards both internal climate migration and external. how do people make decisions about who gets to move around and who gets, you know, accepted into the country? Um, what's less kind of what I don't think we can even even broach with people because it hasn't occurred to them is this idea that um, Australia in, in a couple of decades is gonna, is could become a climate migrant country itself that will be looking to relocate. Uh, i don 't know maybe to southwest England or something like that, uh, and then I think the shoe might be a little bit on the other foot in terms of um, you know the discussions that we 've had and political discourse surrounding our responsibility to the to to the region
0: that's really interesting and what what's your timeline for that study
1: uh, so we've just actually got a big uh, for for that study that will um, be completed hopefully by the end of uh, the, the calendar year where unfortunately we're getting a bit of some slow responses but um, we did a, a a previous study to that which just um, looks at what predicts people's attitudes to, to climate-driven migration so we've gone out and we've uh, surveyed 5,000 uh, people who are, you know, roughly representative of the Australian population, and we've just got the data set in yesterday. <laughs> so right. quite got time. Haven't quite had time to do any of those analyses yet. So, perhaps in a week or so, I might have had something a lot more juicy for
0: you. I'm afraid, but um... that's really interesting. Um, one thing, as I mentioned earlier, you've been working in this field for quite some time, as you said yourself in your bio, in your introduction, and. You, I've, I found this article you co-wrote for The Conversation uh, titled, There's Three Types of Climate Change Denier, and Most of Us Are At Least One, which is also confronting <laughs> in itself. Um, and so, I'll, again, I'll link to the full piece in the show notes, but I'd love it if you could speak to those three types of climate change deniers you explain in the piece. So as I, as I understood, it, it was outright denial, interpretive denial and implicatory denial.
1: That's right. So it's a, it's a it's a kind of a, a crude categorisation. So this is this is a piece I wrote with um, Ian Walker, who is the research director. Yeah, um, and we as authors include ourselves in in that title. Most of us, including us, uh, are one of those types of denier. So um, so it was originally applied this typology to to refer to people's uh, you know how can people accept. Um, you know, mass atrocities during wartime. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think um, it's not too long a border cast to, um, to, to, to use it here. So, um, so if we talk about denial of climate change, um, you know, most people would think about the people who just, you know, hands over their ears, it's not happening, yet. it's not happening. And that's something we'd call uh, outright denial, which is just simply the denial of facts. Mm. So you just don't accept the climate science, you know, it's all a big hoax um scientists around the world have sometimes somehow miraculously managed to coordinate, you know, the, the world's greatest hoax and, you know, <laughs> and the conversation goes no further. Now, what we find when we survey the Australian population is that actually not many people in Australia fit into that outright denial category, you know, capped ca- around 6% of the population. But if you ask people how many Australians, the proportion of Australians people... Uh, think uh, outright deniers. People tend to say, I reckon about about 30% of the Australian population could be classified as outright deniers, but that's just not the case. But these outright deniers tend to have very loud voices and some have a lot of airtime, which which probably means that we're misperceiving that particular norm. Um, Then we have interpretive denial, which is something that you see a lot more commonly. So that's... um, this isn't where the facts are denied so much as misconstrued or distorted to, to fit a particular narrative. So the classic one for climate change would be, oh, yeah, I accept the climate is changing, but it's always changed. Or I accept the climate is changing, but, you know, it could be good. It could be good for us. You <laughs> know, we have be able to different crops. You know, there's kind of tortured ways of making it, turning it into mm. a benefit somehow. Um, and, and you would see that um, a, a lot of the politicians for example who are antagonistic to climate action will engage in a lot of this misconstrual of what the climate science is actually telling us so this um, our, our previous um, uh, surveys that we've done as part of cSIRO which say that oh that this you know we could have another 30 percent of the population would somehow misconstrue the fact or downplay the importance or, and so on so Um, And so, then the last category, which is something which is where I like to live, um, is in implicatory denial zone. And it's where most of us probably sit. So, this is where you know you don't have a problem with the facts uh, or the message. Uh, So, you accept science, yeah, it looks pretty bad. Gee, that's terrible, isn't it? But what's denied is the implications that those facts have for. The way we should be living our lives, uh, you know, what should, what should we be doing in our, in our in our own homes as part of our own lives and, uh, you know, I don't know, as part of, you know, who we're, we're voting for or something like that. Um, so, but instead of having a psychological and a social response that fits the import of the message, we kind of push it away. We, we, we keep it as... At a distance because it's just too hard, and I don't know. We'll use a heat cup every now and again. That makes <laughs> us feel good. About but yes. we still, you know, we still drive places. We're still using, you know, um, we're not going off grid. We're not making these massive kind of changes. Uh, that would be um, proportionate to the to 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 what the climate sciences is telling us that we need to do which is radically reshape our lives. Um, now not everybody, um, so, so that's where a lot of people sit, it's kind of business as usual, uh, when you've got the headspace you can really deal with the existential um, uh, consequences of it all but to live in that zone of dealing with um, what the facts are telling us is, is, is very difficult. Um, and we do see evidence, I think, really in the last two or three years that it's, this is, it's a difficult space to sit in long term because it creates a lot of dissonance. So it's kind of gnawing away at the back of your mind. Um, and that, that becomes too much for people. And then, then you get these people saying, okay, we're just going to go through this. <laughs> it's almost like a grieving process. It's like, I'm going to deal with this directly, what it means for you know uh, biodiversity collapse yes. and so on. And, and you know, living in major urban centres, and and so, and um, and people are more and more people are retreating, um, to you know, a place with water security, uh, environmental security, uh, where they're not reliant on traditional forms of power, and so on and so forth. But to bring everybody there as a nation, uh, and you know, and and, and globally, all at once, is you know, um, it hasn't been done before, and I think. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 almost like you, you, you need a one-on-one a clinician for every person to take you through uh, the implications of all of this, which is obviously you can't do a mass rollout or something like that. So I think socially, it's going to be a really really difficult process to to tackle that transition out of an implicatory denial into into you know this. A, quite fundamental shift of our worldview and how we organise our societies. I
0: don't have any answers. I think what you said as well about this idea of the outright denier, that's what kind of you have in your head or I have in my head sometimes, you know, this angry um, person or someone like Scott Morrison holding up coal in parliament, these kind of things, that that's what you think of when you think of climate change deniers, but it's actually just... All of us, yeah, in this implicatory denial, moving about our lives um, as we approach a, a timeline where we, you know, cannot change things anymore, uh, and and that is a really terrifying thought. And so, yeah, this cognitive dissonance that goes on that I that I experience as well, because you know, I think that just feels so overwhelming, doesn't it? Like I said, if you have someone, if you have a campaign or someone guiding you, well, what can I do? And this idea, And I've talked. Um, about this to other guests well will my uh, contribution really make a difference as an individual if I stop flying or if I yeah like I said I use my keep cup here and there I've stopped eating meat um, will these things really make a difference because you know we're not maybe we're not feeling this collective sense of that somehow
1: yeah and look I think that's true and there is a lot of um the, from the message framing uh, research that's been done in this space, that, that it is a danger of saying, "Oh my God, we're all gonna, we're all heading for, to this awful precipice." Yeah. So make you take a make sure you don't get your groceries in a plastic bag. <laughs> so it's such a mismatch between this is the problem and this is a solution mm-hmm. that it's actually off putting. Yes. Um, but what we also know is that, and this is why social norms uh, are. And, and misperceptions of the social norms are so important um, when we ask people what they you know what every everyday things they're doing um, to reduce their carbon emissions you know we get a nice kind of even distribution where some people only a few people are doing not much at all a lot of people are doing you know a moderate amount and not many people are doing everything mm. but when we ask them to estimate their own behavior compared to other australians Every, not everyone, but the vast majority of people tend to think they're better uh, than mm. the evidence suggests they are. So there's there's two possible explanations for that. One is this better than average bias that oh I'm I'm just I'm just better than everyone else because I'm wonderful. But <laughs> I think even even like because it makes you feel good about yourself and yeah. you know warm and fuzzy. But I think a more plausible explanation might be that people actually discount the amount that the person down the road is doing Um, you tend to be you tend to uh, you tend to have your attention drawn to people who are doing the wrong thing and you tend to overlook when people are doing the right thing and that kind of extends to our perceptions of what others think about uh, environmental issues in general and in climate change is that uh, both in Australia and in other countries we tend to, to underestimate the amount that people care about this issue. Hmm. Um, and so the consequence of that is that you, you feel like you're going it alone, um, but it's actually not, you know, the, you, you know, your eye and your neighbor saying, oh, I bet they don't care about climate change. So they're just happy you know, doing their gardening or whatever. Uh, where the, the chances are they're, they're probably thinking the same thing about you. That we underestimate how much people care and I think that's a really important misperception to correct because then that does lead into that sense that we're going you know I'm going it alone and what can I as one person do
0: Hmm.
1: um yeah so that would be a big kind of message to to draw out from some of some of our research
0: that's really interesting so maybe opportunities uh for communities to come together more i don't know whether that's in a town hall sense or something to to actually speak to each other and realize we do have misconceptions about what the other's doing yeah
1: definitely um and
0: you know those kind of
1: communal uh, collective activities are really important and you find you know people go on the climate marches mm. and they come away you know, it, it's, it's cathartic um, uh, because you've been part of this collective you know, response, uh, which makes you feel that, you know, you're not going it alone as well. But I think having those, I think it's really important to have, because we know that climate change is, you know, so dreadfully politicised mm. and there are a lot of kind of ideological bases for, for, for why people might not be doing as much as, you know, the person next to them, that those collective those co- collective forms of response are not kind of, uh, you know, they, they're not, you know, dressed up as this kind of left-wing hippie yes. community, you know, thing thing that, you know, because you don't want to be preaching to the converted and yeah. then you want to get conservatives on side as well. And it's like, well, yeah, do you know what, I'm not going to, you know, sit in a yurt and talk about my feelings, <laughs> which is, you know, some, you know, some, sort, of, um, some sort of stereotyped response yeah. uh, that they might have. And actually where you find it works uh, really well is that you have some things like farmers' alliances mm. uh, coming together and uh, because you're finding another way to kind of organise. Uh, it's based on, you know, another kind of social identity that's not political. Uh, and so you have people, you know, farmers coming together who represent you know the entire spectrum of, um, of of politics and and that's I think a really powerful collective collective action.
0: Yeah, that's great. Maybe we will see more of those people that we don't as- typically associate with caring about climate change. Like you said, you know it's not just something that hippies. Uh... Um, you know, marching about—it's it, affecting everyone, and especially, yeah, these these people who are in rural environments, and also maybe our our leaders in the community as well. I guess. Yeah, I think that's true, and
1: it's like as, you know, is as this becomes um, something that impacts us much more immediately, I think, then the the, the big seismic shift will happen. So. Um, as much as you can, always get a segment of the community to care very, very intensely about what's happening in, you know, Tuvalu and uh, the low-lying Pacific Islands. Hmm. You're never going to get the attention of a large swathe of uh, of Australians. That's just the unfortunate reality of yeah. the situation. But um, when it starts to hit home, um, and you know, people's responses to to, to what happened. Um, with the fires that, mm-hmm. you know, you can talk about biodiversity collapse and things like that, but when you see a koala, which is kind of where we're all connected to, I mean, it's quite, I don't want to throw around the word trauma too yeah. loosely, but it's, it's traumatic for people to, to see that because there is such a close connection between that particular fauna uh, and every Australian, I think. And so um, what you have is a lot of, so what we do know from our research is people link the impacts of climate change to something or someone they care about, then once that link is made, um, everything else falls into place. Um, they're you know very gung ho about immediate climate policy action and you know they change their behaviors, etc. A lot of people are doing that intergenerationally, so see a lot of the you know, for instance, the climate school m- marches, you see a lot of grandparents and parents there who are marching pretty much on behalf of you know um, their kids, their grandkids and future generations as well. Um, so once those impacts become more obvious and more immediate, it will touch more people. It, it means that for, for, for nearly everyone, we even if we're not personally in fact impacted by it, we'll know someone that we love who is mm. impacted. And once that connection is made for everyone, then I think you'll see seismic behavioural
0: shifts. Fantastic. Look, Zoe, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Where can people find your work online, whether that's Twitter or a website or to take the survey themselves?
1: That's a really good question. Uh, so um, they can use my uh, Twitter handle, which is at ZLEVO, and otherwise, if you if you Google my name, you'll be able to find my um, ANU details yep. there. They should pop up uh, straight away uh, or uh, Google me on Google Scholar. That's in ah. if you're
0: interested in, in looking at my work. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and all the best for getting some results for the survey. Thanks so much, Melissa. You can also find the links to Zoe's work in the show notes for this episode. There With A Friend is hosted, produced and mixed by me on The Square Ward. Thanks for listening and until next time.